I'm Damian Bolwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, California tries to confront racism, past and present, as the state looks at how to provide reparations to African Americans who were descended from enslaved people or were harmed by racist policies in all the years since. As the nation now reckons with deep, lasting inequalities in areas like education, home ownership, and the criminal justice system, California has decided to take on reparations alone. It created a task force, which is doing its work now, to document the state's history of slavery, oppression, and the theft of black wealth, and then recommend to the legislature what to do about it. This week, that task force met to hear testimony. Next summer, it will deliver its recommendations to the legislature. But what might reparations look like in practice? And why are we studying California and not a state in the American South? Joining me to answer those questions are Tamerlan Drummond, former Oakland Tribune columnist now at the ACLU of Northern California, where she's working on the organization's reparations project. And later, Chronicle reporter Dustin Gardner, who's been following the hearings in Sacramento. My first guest is Tamerlan Drummond. Tamerlan, how are you? I'm great. It's so good to be here. Well, it's good to see you. Thanks so much for coming on. I wanted to start by with something that I read from your colleague, Jeffrey Robinson at the ACLU. It really struck me. He said, when we talk about race in America, we are always trying to skirt the edges because getting to the heart of the matter requires a journey to a place where people and nations seldom want to go. Why was it important for you and the ACLU to get involved in talking about reparations? Well, I just want to back up a little bit. We first at the ACLU of Northern California decided to look into California's little-known history of slavery. And the reason why we wanted to do that is that a lot of the racist laws and government policies that were created in California back in the 1850s really drive a lot of the work that we're doing today, a lot of our legal work and our advocacy work, and that we discovered that you can actually do direct through lines from what was happening back then to what's happening in the past. And so it's very important for people to understand the past in order to understand some of the issues that we're dealing with today. Now, a lot of people are going to be surprised that California is the one to, to go it alone. Um, they might say, why, is, why California? Because this history is not often taught, correct? That's correct. And I will tell you that our now Secretary of State Shirley Weber's answer to that question was, we got sick and tired of waiting for the federal government to take action. You know, there had been a reparations bill uh, kicking around the Congress for more than 30 years. And so California decided that we should take the lead. Now, California has a very ugly chapter of its history that most people are never taught. I certainly wasn't taught about slavery in California. I did not discover that we had slavery until about two years ago. Uh, and this history was deliberately erased from the textbooks, and that's why we don't know it. I mean, that's the only possible explanation for it. Uh, a lot of this information is available in the public record, uh, but you really have to hunt for it. And we spent several months doing that. Well, let's talk about that. What should people know about the history of California that you said you weren't taught? I certainly wasn't taught it. Well, what I was taught was that California entered the Union in 1850 as a free state. And that is only partly true, because California, from its very inception, began creating laws that allowed uh, Southern slaveholders basically to keep the slaves that they had brought here from the South. One thing we also learned was that gold was discovered in California, you know, the 
story about John Sutter and the mill that we were all taught. But what we weren't taught is that, you know, the gold rush happens and all of these Southerners start flooding into the state with their slaves and they put them to work mining gold. And when California actually gets statehood in 1850, their attitude is they're going to keep their slaves no matter what. They don't care what the law says. And what essentially happened is that California government, you know, elected officials created all kinds of laws to get around the state constitution that banned slavery and basically allowed slaveholders to use the courts in violation of our own state constitution to keep all these, you know, men, women, and children enslaved. And a lot of these folks were not just, you know, adults working in the gold fields, but there were a lot of children who were enslaved in California. You know, the last known slave case involved a little 12-year-old girl, you know, up in the Sacramento area. Uh, and she was just treated miserably until she was basically rescued by one of her neighbors. So this is a history that it's a very ugly chapter. And it's one that, you know, when we were working on this ACLU of Northern California project, I would mention to people that I was researching the history of slavery in California. And they were like, what are you talking about? California was a free state. California never had slavery. And that's why we, you know, called it, you know, the hidden history of slavery in California. To this day, it's, you know, it's not a history that a lot of people know about. I'll tell you one other fact a lot of people don't know about. The first governor of California, his name was Peter Burnett. And Peter Burnett had come to California uh, from Oregon where his uh, claim to fame there was that he came up with a law that would require all the black people to be banned from the state, and those who did not leave would be forcibly lashed, and so they call the law Peter's Lash Law. Well, Peter Burnett turns up in California during the gold rush era, becomes governor, and spends most of his time trying to get a law passed that would ban black people from the state. Now, this law never happened, but it just gives you an indication of kind of the attitudes of some of our elected officials uh, at that time. And those were the people that created the laws that essentially, you know, carried throughout time to where we are today and sort of laid the foundations for a lot of our institutions, you know, our courts and, you know, uh, various other government policies that we're dealing with today. So it, it, it seems like what we're talking about is this folklore of California that we sort of want to believe, that we're taught. Um, and I, the thing I kind of want to ask you is, for reparations, when we talk about it, we don't just talk about what to do, the policies, how it works. There needs to be a lot of study of the past, a reckoning with it, um, publishing that, perhaps apologizing. Why is it so important to do all of the work to lay out the groundwork before you even get to the policies? The reason why you've got to lay out the groundwork is that if people do not understand the history, they do not understand the arguments for reparations. They think that this is just, you know, a lot of black people who uh, feel that they are entitled to some kind of handout. So in other words, if you don't understand the history, if you don't really understand the specific laws that were passed that we can actually carry through to this day and see how our current systems are just infected by these racist laws that were created in the past. I'll give you an example. For instance, in our court system, you know, we talk a lot about racial inequities in the court system. Well, we can go back to 1850 
when California passed a law that basically banned black people and actually all people of color eventually from testifying in court. Now, if you follow this through to its natural conclusion, today we don't have laws that actually ban people from testifying. But what we do have is a system where black testimony, you know, testimony by black people is discredited still to this day. So you get situations where, you know, black people are struck from juries. You get defense attorneys who are afraid to put their client on the stand because they believe that, you know, their client, because he or she is black, won't be believed. So, you know, we can see definite connections between past and today. Uh, and that's one of the reasons behind the law that created the reparations task force was to um, educate people. I mean, that's one of their main goals is that, you know, we can't begin to sort of uh, atone for the past if we don't even know what happened and it's not being taught in our schools. So there's an opposition line that you hear that says reparations are transferring money from people who had nothing to do with slavery to people who were not enslaved. And, and you sort of hear that over and over again. What is your response to that? Well, I think, again, this goes to education. Um, and what I would sort of educate um, some of my white friends and colleagues over the years is that neither you or I had anything to do with what happened, but we both were either beneficiaries or victims of it. So if you are a person whose family was able to benefit from low interest loans that the federal government gave to white families, but denied to black families, and because of that, your family was able to, over the course of generations, accumulate wealth, and many black families were not because they were denied those same privileges, how do you make those black families whole? And this is what we're really talking about is black people being denied the opportunity to accumulate wealth. And obviously there were some people who managed to, uh, in spite of all the obstacles thrown up in their paths, uh, to still succeed. But there were many, many others who were not able to do that. And we see that in terms of even today, you know, the just huge disinvestment that we see in certain neighborhoods. So, you know, in order to be able to really repair the harm that was done, you know, folks are going to have to be willing to give up something. I mean, it's not just a matter of, you know, living in Piedmont and hanging a Black Lives Matter sign in your window. All right, Tamerlan Drummond, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. We're going to take a quick break on Fifth and Mission before we talk to Chronicle reporter Destin Gardner. To learn more about the ACLU of Northern California's multimedia project called Gold Chains, The Hidden History of Slavery in California, go to goldchainsca.org. We'll be right back. You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa, now joined by Chronicle reporter Dustin Gardner from Sacramento. Dustin, how are you? Hey, Damian. Thanks for having me. So, Dustin, you've been covering these hearings in California where this task force is looking into reparations. Tell us about what happened this week. 
Yeah, so the task force held a two two day hearing this week. They've been holding hearings every month since they got started this summer, um, and they they heard from a huge group of experts um, in all different areas talking about the ways African Americans have been harmed by the vestiges of slavery. You know, from Jim Crow laws to redlining and housing um, to discrimination in employment. So they just really got a very, they've been getting a very broad um, overview of the history of discrimination um, and racial oppression in America. And they're compiling all those stories and recommendations into a report that they'll send to the legislature next summer. Okay. So we're going to be having this once a month and people can call in if they want to. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, a two-day um, hearing every month. And yeah, they're taking a lot of public testimony. And then they're talking to a pretty wide range of experts. And it's everything from, you know, they're hearing from students, Black students who say that they face discrimination in schools and that they've, um, you know, been, been kicked out of schools and um, criminalized as youth um, to even examples of people saying they've faced discrimination in housing because their 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 appraisals you know for black family after they had their home appraised it appraised far lower than other people in the area so it's just a very wide range of discrimination they've been looking at what we've seen around the country is a debate not only about whether there should be reparations but a lot of talk about how it will work, how it should work, whether it's feasible, how much are they getting into talking about how reparations would actually happen in practice? When the legislature and Governor Newsom approved this reparations task force um, a, a year ago, they, they didn't make any determinations about the form of compensation or who would be eligible. So the task force is having to get into all that nitty gritty. Um, and while, while they're collecting information on the history of, of racism and, and slavery in America, they are starting to get into some of those, um, you know, more cut and dry questions of who, what would who would be eligible and what what would the reparations be? They have until next June to make all those final decisions, but they had an interesting discussion this week where they really waded into that eligibility question. Um, th- there's a debate over whether this should be open to all black people or just people who can directly trace their ancestry to people who were enslaved in this country going back hundreds of years ago. And the task force was, was they're pretty divided over that. I mean, you had people saying that um, those who've immigrated more recently if they're eligible, they should be eligible to a much lesser degree of, of reparations. Um, and then you had others saying that just, you know, a, a, any person who's black in this country is facing, it, it is catching hell, as one per, one task force member put it, um, it w- because they're dealing with things like, you know, uh, policing, pl- uh, brutality from police to everything from discrimination in employment and housing and the school system. So I think that's something they're going to continue to drill down into. And have they settled on the idea of payments? Because there's been a lot of talk locally and nationally about whether reparations might or some part of the reparations might take the form of things that could affect the whole state, like loans, like investment in schools, things like that. Yeah, they haven't settled any form of compensation at this point. Um, and like I said, they do have several months to get to that point. Um, but even the sponsor of this effort, um, Secretary of State Shirley Weber, who carried the legislation to create this task force when she was in the state assembly, she told me last year after this passed that she is skeptical about the idea of cash payments and she's more comfortable with things like, you know, potentially uh, having more investment in education and healthcare and, you 
you know, uh, pro- property ownership for, for African-Americans. So the task force hasn't gone there yet. It's clear from their discussions that they think some sort of substantial reparations are necessary, um, but, but they really haven't settled on what the means could be. And I think there are still some people who are open to cash reparations of some sort, or if not cash, land. Um, but then I think we're going to see others who are, are pushing for kind of more uh, more, more broad st- systemic institutional f- forms of compensation. Um, yeah, whether it's loans or grants or access to higher education, it could take a lot of different forms. And is there any concern that division over this this issue of just how to distribute potentially reparations could be a sticking point in the whole thing? Yeah, one of the task force members said today that they're they're concerned that if that if things aren't laid out very clearly at the beginning in terms of who's eligible, um, that, that could be a, a major sticking point for the task force at the end because they could end up gathering a lot of information about different communities and groups that have been harmed by racist policies in the United States, and then at the end of the day, they're going to have to have a discussion about who to exclude. And they, in in this task force member's words, he thinks it was easier kind of to start by narrowing who who all you're going to include at the beginning. So that's, you keep that focus narrow. And so I think they really are struggling with that decision of who, who to include, because again, th- this isn't just about um, slavery. This is about the many vestiges of slavery that, you know, have spanned over the last 150 years. When you're covering these hearings, what does the opposition look like? We know it's out there. What does it look like in terms of the hearing or the legislature? In the legislature, this um, this effort to create the task force, it was opposed by most Republicans in the legislature. Um, there was not a whole lot of debate um, when this came up. However, many of the Republican legislators just v- quietly opposed it. Um, but nationally, we've seen Republicans be pretty outspoken against this. Um, Mitch McConnell, the Republican uh, minority leader in the U.S. Senate, he said that he doesn't support the idea of reparations nationally because he doesn't know how you go back and repay someone for for a wrong that was done when none of the people who were directly enslaved are living. Um, But again, proponents of reparations will say that this is not just about the direct act of slavery. This is about the the lingering impacts and the many vestiges. And they point out, um, you know, that many Black families have a, a wealth have um, have wealth that is about a tenth of mo- what most white families have in California. What happens next summer after this report gets turned in? Does the legislature have to act? Does it go to voters? Whatever this task force recommends, this ultimately has to be approved by the legislature. Um, and the task force members have been sensitive to that. They've had discussions noting that they're going to have to make sure there is public buy-in and support for this. Um, and they're planning to go to the public. Um, I think starting this winter, they're going to have a series of public hearings around the state where they're trying to build support for this. Um, but even though the legislature is um, you know, controlled by Democrats, there's a supermajority of Democrats in the legislature, I think whatever they recommend, it is going to be a tough sell because this could be a significant budget um, ask for the state. I mean, some of the estimates have suggested that to really close the wealth gap for African-Americans in the state, that it could cost upwards of $800 billion. Um, And the state obviously doesn't have that kind of money laying around. And so if the state's going to get serious about about some of these ideas, it would have to come up with long-term finance plans to, to do that gradually. And that's that's going to be a very tough debate in the legislature. All right, Dustin Gardner, thanks for joining me again. Thanks so much. Thanks to my guest today, Tamerlan Drummond of the ACLU of Northern California. 
and Chronicle reporter Dustin Gardner. A quick reminder about our Fifth and Mission listener survey. We've gotten some great feedback so far, and we'd like to hear from you. Go to sfchronicle.com slash survey to tell us what you think of the show. Thanks also to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.